Welcome to Sullivan's Pro Football Kickoff. It's about the Bills and the beer. Now, here's your host, John Murphy. Well, hi there and welcome. Merry Christmas. Happy holidays, everyone. Welcome to Sullivan's Pro Football Kickoff, the podcast. I'm John Murphy, the play-by-play voice of the Buffalo Bills, here for number 16 of our podcasts. Happy to have you with us. There's a lot to be cheerful about these days, this December 2020, especially about the Buffalo Bills, right? They have finally snapped the New England Patriots' two-decade-long stranglehold on the AFC East. We're going to talk about that with a man who knows New England, knows the Patriots, good friend of mine, Bob Sochi. He's the play-by-play voice of the Patriots, a native of upstate New York. The Bills are getting ready to play in Foxborough next Monday night. We'll talk to Bob about that, the Patriots' 2020 season, and what lies ahead for that franchise. Our beer, we got a great guest, a great beer guest, another upstate New York native, by the way. Gloria Rakowski lives in the Syracuse area. She's been involved in the beer business for a while, a former college professor. She combines both of those skills in her new endeavor, Crafted Minds, and her new website, CraftedMindsLLC.com. She's interested in beer education, and she is especially positioned to do that. We'll talk with Gloria Rakowski of Crafted Minds in our... Uh, podcast later on today. But back to the Bills. The victory over Denver last Saturday. The easy win. I knew it would be. I knew Denver wasn't any good. But the Bills locked up the AFC East Division title. They locked it up and they unleashed an avalanche of emotion in Bills Nation. Bills fans reacting crazy to the first division title in 25 years. You know, back in the day, 25 years ago, when they won it last, that was the sixth division title in eight years. Much different now and a much different spin on the Bills. Mostly because, I think, mostly because they're at the front end of what could be a glorious era in franchise history. They're just getting started. They're just getting warmed up. They've got a quarterback in his third year still in his first contract. Josh Allen seemingly gets better week to week. They've got emerging superstars. Wide receiver Stefan Diggs, one of the best in the league. Cornerback Tredavious White. They've got a couple of standouts at safety. It's talent all over the place. Most of all, though, they have a management team that's just getting started. Sean McDermott, Brandon Bean in their fourth year, both with new contract extensions. Both look like they're ready to build a long-term, top-level program for the Bills that will endure. Yeah, it feels like this could be the start of a great era of NFL football in Buffalo. In the immediate short term, two games left in the regular season at New England, home against Miami. The goal in these final two weeks should be A, stay healthy. That doesn't mean sit people out for a couple of weeks, but I think it does mean take care to protect players who may be hurting just a bit or banged up. Do what you can to get people as healthy and as rested as you can. Goal number two, stay sharp. Try to win. There's still a chance Buffalo could get the number two seed. They are out of the running for the top seed, but the second seed means a second home playoff game if you win the first. That is critical. That's important. And maybe that's a home game with fans in attendance. We'll see. That would put the cherry on top of an amazing 2020 season. Two important goals to keep in mind for the final couple of weeks on the Bills' regular season. Should be fun. Our podcast is going to be fun. We're going to kick it off in just a minute by looking at the Patriots with Bob Sochi, the play-by-play voice of the New England Patriots. You're listening to Sullivan's Pro Football Kickoff with John Murphy. Our guest is a good buddy of mine. He is a native of Auburn, New York, in central New York, and he is the play-by-play voice 
of the one-time AFC East champion, New England Patriots. Bob Sochi joined us. Bob, I'm sorry. I promised I wouldn't gloat. But you got to give me – got to cut me a little slack here. It's kind of fun to say that. You are entitled, John. I'm sure you've heard from a few Patriots fans uh, during your years calling the Bills, especially the last 11, 17 of the last 19, who have yeah. more than gloated at the Bills' expense. Yeah, it is. It's pretty amazing. And, and we were talking a little bit before we came on the air, and we're going to talk about the, the mood in New England with the Patriots now out of the division. But I got to say, and I'll say it right off the top, that 25 years is a testament to how good the Patriots were. It's also a testament to the ineptitude of the Bills, the, the Dolphins, and the Jets. I mean, they just were three teams that just could not get their act together for uh, 25 years, 20 yeah, years John, at least. Yeah, you know, John, and I think about it, just in my experience alone, calling college football and the NFL, I called Navy football games for 16 years, and I saw a lot of players – play against the midshipmen who went on to the NFL. And I remember J.P. Losman, of course, at Tulane and Navy playing against him and him going into the NFL as a first-round pick of the Bills. And, you know, you see the succession of quarterbacks who've gone in to try to follow Jim Kelly and get the Bills back on track. And, and, and the number of them through the years that have played against the Patriots, trying to unseat Tom Brady in the Pats at the top of the division. And that search continually, you know, coming up futile after a couple of years and having to restart, reset, and changes in the front office, changes on the sidelines. Just in my experience alone, you know, to go from Doug Marone to Rex Ryan, of course, to Sean McDermott. And we were talking off air, as you said, and, 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 I, and I really believe that the Bills got it right with a guy like McDermott and Brandon Bean as the head coach and general manager. And that's a credit to the Pagulas and the ownership there as well, you know, to have the 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 recognition in a guy like Sean McDermott, not a flashy name, not an offensive genius, but somebody who came in and instilled discipline, changed the culture. I think back to some of the games when maybe the Bills were very ta more talented than the Patriots in some respects that, that I called early in our tenure, but they would come unraveled, come unglued. You'd see personal fouls, you know, lead to huge swings in those games. And we haven't seen that the last few years under McDermott. And as he's been the head coach, you've seen pieces fill in and in particular the quarterback and you know that uh, I think highly of Brian Dable he was one of my favorite Patriots assistant coaches while he was here you know a guy that took a personal interest in my family or what I did just in conversation which I thought was you know highly unusual in my experience and, and to see him doing so well and, and, and having the success with Josh Allen um, I'm happy for him I'm happy for the people of Buffalo too despite you know, our disappointment. You mentioned I'm from Auburn. I was thinking about uh, all those friends and family members that I grew up around who loved the Bills. And when I've gone back home in recent years, you know, I have to, you know, kind of uh, bite their tongue when, when <laughs> Patriots talk, you know, yeah. starts to take place around the table. So, but I, I think I ask you about. I was yeah. going to ask you about that, your background. Does a kid growing up in Auburn follow the Bills, or do you just – I know it's different down that way towards Syracuse when I went to school there. There's some Bills fans, but people are all over the place, right? Well, there, there were a lot of Bills fans when I was a kid, from, number one, because the Bills became really good. Uh, particularly, you know, the 90s, you know, that, that's time, maybe the late 80s, 90s. And, uh, you know, I lived in Rochester for a couple of those years when the Bills went to back-to-back -back Super Bowls. But even before that, the Bills were the team we saw more often on NBC as the – network the care of the AFC games and the Giants you know were really rooted in that area as well for for most of the older fans that I recall and then a lot of people were fans of whatever team was winning you know I grew up as a Dolphins fan frankly because my brother was a Steelers fan and my best friend was a Cowboys fan and those teams along with the Raiders 
were the dominant teams of the 70s. But I didn't like the Raiders at all. Maybe they were the bad guys. I liked the Dolphins' colors. So I like the aqua blue and the orange. And, you know, my father, being of Italian descent, son of immigrants, if somebody had a vowel on the end of his name, you rooted for him in our house. Even if he wasn't Italian, if he, he could So Don Shula wasn't Italian, he was Hungarian, I think. But my father rooted for the Dolphins because of Don Shula. And then of course they got Dan Marino. So obviously that was an no-brainer. Uh, so, so my first game, actually going to an NFL game was in Buffalo. It was the Dolphins and uh, the Bills. My first regular season broadcast was in Buffalo as well, opening day 2013. Uh, E.J. Manuel, another first-round quarterback uh, for the Bills, of course, in that long list. Uh, he Tell made about great... your professional path uh, to become the play-by-play voice of the Patriots. How, how, did, that, uh, how did that take place? Oh, gosh, I don't, we, don't, we don't have enough time for that. <laughs> well, you know, growing up in Auburn, uh, it was a, I knew when I was 9, 10, 11 years old that I wanted to be a broadcaster. And while I was playing Little League Baseball at the Auburn Little League Complex, we had this great setup at Stewart Field. Uh, and uh, we had a press box and lights and a PA system. So the commissioner of the league, who took a lot of interest in, in all the kids in our community, recognized that, you know, I was this kid that wanted to be a broadcaster. I, w- I was playing. We had double headers. He gave me the opportunity when I wasn't playing games to go sit in the press box and occasionally announce players' names. So I would play in the six o'clock game and then go up for the seven o'clock game and you know do the PA and remind people to return all foul balls to the playing field immediately when balls were hit out of play. And that 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 John that 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 really fueled that drive for me at an early age. And my first job behind a microphone professionally was with the Auburn Astros working at old Falcon park in the New York Penn league uh, for a woman named Leslie Leary, who was kind of a trailblazer in professional baseball as a female executive who went from marketing kind of into baseball operations. And uh, Leslie gave me that opportunity while I was a freshman in college to do uh, PA while guys like Kenny Lofton, we're playing for the Auburn Astros. And, you know, from there, continued to, to, to look for a, a path in broadcasting through the minor leagues. Spent two years with the Rochester Red Wings. We've talked about that in the past. Yep. Uh, my broadcast partner was Josh Loon. He was the main guy. I was his home game assistant. And whenever I could, I would travel to Buffalo, Syracuse, Scranton, any of the close games on my own just to get some innings in. And, you know, that, that, was followed by the circuitous path through various minor league baseball leagues, eventually landed at the U.S. Naval Academy. Years later, dozen years later, met my wife, who was from Boston, finishing up her studies in the Baltimore, Washington area. She got an opportunity to come back home. I thought, look, I've always wanted to live and work in Boston or New York. I'm going to go there. We're going to, we're going to set up my base there. We'll live there. We'll raise our kids there. We want grandparents nearby and I'll start knocking on doors. And that's what happened. 2009, uh, the sports hub, uh, FM affiliate flagship of the Patriots launches 24 hour sports station. I knock on the door of the program director. He's kind enough to let me in. I try to introduce myself and make a pitch for part-time work, anything just to get out of the air, get my foot in the door. I was doing college basketball, college football, minor league baseball down in Norfolk, Virginia at the time. Nothing for three years, did not hear anything, but I left a CD that day. And it had samples of my football play-by-play, a Navy game versus Notre Dame, a Navy game versus Ohio State. And out of the blue in December 2012, I got an email from the executive producer of the Patriots Radio Network saying that I was recommended by the program director and the assistant program director for the opening that was about to uh, come, uh, that was about to uh, uh, materialize because Gil Santos, the longtime voice of the Patriots, was retiring. And, you know, that led to... The process of setting in another CD, being considered, interviewing, 
and, and, and being one of the luckiest people uh, to get that job. Yeah, that's a great story. And you were, you've just wrapped up your eighth season as the play-by-play voice, or wrapping up your eighth season of the play-by-play voice, right? Yes, sir. Yeah, two more games to go. Yeah, uh, eight, you know, go. eight seasons right. in the books. Yep. And you've got – let's talk about the Patriots for a moment. You've seen them win all those division titles and uh, all the good that comes with that. I was shocked when I looked at the, uh, the headline in the Boston Globe uh, this Monday after the loss to the Dolphins. It said, it's over. Like it, like it was, you know, Japanese attack Pearl Harbor. It was the same type. It's over. Is it, is it that kind of a feeling in New England that uh, that's the end of an era, do you think? Yeah, John, I think there's, there's a strong uh, base of fans that has that feeling. I think there's also a number of others who uh, take it in stride a little bit more and recognize how lucky we've all been, especially you know me in the league for eight years. And as you mentioned, all the division titles, the AFC Championship Games, Super Bowls that have had the, the, the good fortune of, of being a part of calling anyway. I, I think there is a, a strong sentiment, you know, the, the, with, without, without the quarterback. You know, it makes all the difference in the world, I think, in the mindset of a, of a fan base. And, and as you know, the success of a football team at the NFL level. And with Tom Brady moving on, I think a lot of people are, are you know, now asking that question. Well, did Tom Brady cover up for a lot of the flaws that this football team had toward the tail end of that two-decade run atop the division and as a perennial Super Bowl contender. So, and that's been a narrative, frankly, for, for, for some time in recent years, as the Patriots have gone through some cycles of poor drafts, and we've seen a talent dip at certain positions, even you know, as the Patriots were winning Super Bowl 53 against the Rams. Throughout that season, it was a narrative. What's wrong with the Patriots' offense? You know, what's the future of this team? How, how much longer does Brady have with the past? I mean, there's always drama around this team. And, and, and as you know, this is a, 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 an area where the media – it, it doesn't just scrutinize and it's not just skeptical, but often the narratives, even in the best of times, uh, really kind of have a negative slant. And, you know, if, if there's any controversy and we've had plenty of them in my tenure calling the Pats games, uh, you know, that's going to, that's going to drive sports talk radio. And I think that spills over to other mediums as well, including, you know, what, what you're referring to in the Boston globe, uh, even, you know, as I said, even when the Patriots were winning, you know, off, Often it was the negative narratives. I say negative, but, you know, in, in some cases they were fair and, and honest. Uh, but now that the Patriots are going through this season and we have seen them at times be unable to function offensively, while we've looked at teams like the Bills with Josh Allen and the Chiefs with Patrick Mahomes, you know, and these young players coming in and making a huge impact, you look at the Patriots situation and now, you know, Hey, this, this is the way most of the league has lived for these last 20 years, trying to find a franchise quarterback. And that's where this team is. I'm just going to make that point. To me, this is almost a return to a more normal state. Normally a team doesn't dominate a division, a 14 division, the way the Patriots have. And in looking back on it, and I've had this discussion with the people here who I respect, I credit Tom Brady. I think he was a, a huge difference maker. The coach is great best coach of his generation, a certain Hall of Famer. But you can't do it if you don't have the players. And that was that guy was the best player in the league for most of those 20 years, I think. John, I remember a few years ago, I, I ran into a former Bills executive on the field at Gillette Stadium. It was before one of the night games. I can't remember whether it was a Monday night game or if, if, if there was a, a, a Thursday night game uh, that, that we played. And uh, he said, you know, we can't wait till Brady gets out of the league. And I'm sure that's probably the sentiment for the entire division. Uh, and, you know, now looking back, I, I 
thought back to that, that conversation a lot as the season has gone along. I've always been of the mind that it's really both. And I think, I think in, in, I, I sit somewhere in the middle uh, between the, it's all Brady and it's Belichick, you know, who made this team what it was. Because I think, and both have said this, I think Tom Brady was as important to Bill Belichick as Bill Belichick was to Tom Brady. And I think when it came to football, they're, they're one and the same. And I think that's you know, part of the Patriots culture, part of the, you know, holding everybody accountable and, and, and raising the bar season after season, even after you've won and not having those letdowns that other teams experience, you can attribute that to think both of them, you know, Belichick with the way he approaches the game and Brady with the way he approaches the game, but the way Brady plays the game, which I think is what you're referring to. It has overcome, helped them overcome a lot of their, inefficiencies you know a miss here or there the the trade for a wide receiver who didn't pan out or you know drafting a player in the first round and 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 seeing him out of the league within a couple of years I mean you look back at the receivers that the Patriots have had for example just in my experience I mean there are very few of those guys who once they left New England found opportunities with other teams even even guys that you know were relatively high picks like Aaron Dobson and now you're looking at Nikhil Harry the first round pick from last year and you know the jury is very much out on him but already people in these parts you know when they look at DK Metcalf and AJ Brown you know they, they, they turned into the word bust. I'm not, I'm not there yet, but I think, you know, again, you look at what Brady did with what was around him for a long period of time. And I think, you know, certainly you can make that argument. It almost begs the question, Bob, did Brady have to leave? John, it looks like in, in his mind, he did. You know, I think that, uh, the, the, you know, I go back to 2017 and that was a season in which the Patriots wound up getting to the Super Bowl. They had a terrible defense, of course. The offense actually was the strength of that team, and Brady threw for 505 yards in the loss to the Eagles in Super Bowl 52. But all season long, uh, there was this building tension and storylines about uh, you know, a fracture in the relationship between the three pillars of the Patriots dynasty, the ownership, the head coach, the quarterback, Seth Wickersham, wrote a piece on ESPN.com for the magazine that gained a lot of national attention. And it was really based on a lot of the local reporting that was being done here. Brady was unhappy. I think part of it was the contract. Part of it was you know, just after a long run of, of, of success for him, you know, maybe at his age, maybe you know, wanted to be coached a little bit differently. Because I think that's the thing is with, with Belichick and Brady, you know, Brady was always a guy that Belichick could could dissect his flaws in front of the entire team and maybe be the hardest on and maybe kind of like the brightest student in the class. And maybe Brady grew tired of that. That's what the reports were. And I think on top of that, you know, there was a a sense that Belichick was ready to move on. Jimmy Garoppolo had been drafted and developed. There was a lot to like about him. Unfortunately, Tom outplayed the timetable for the transition from Brady to Garoppolo. And eventually, you know, Belichick trades, Garoppolo, we get to 2019, the Patriots have won the Super Bowl again, and they didn't have a great offense, a dynamic offense. They ran the ball mostly down the stretch, and Brady came up with some huge throws against the Chiefs in the AC Championship and then the Super Bowl, and I think he was looking for a contract extension, and when he reported to camp in August of 2019, when asked about his contract, uh, there was one point where he said, well, you know, you have to go talk to Mr. Kraft. And, you know, they, they did reach this deal, but the last two years were voidable. And 
you know, to me, looking back, there were all these signs Brady was putting his house on the market. Um, you know, the, the fact that the last two years avoidable to the Patriots could not apply the franchise tag on Brady at the end of the season. You know, everything pointed to the door opening. I didn't know if there was going to be a, an opening somewhere else that he would want to walk into. And it was a surprise to me that it was Tampa Bay. But ultimately, his choices came down, apparently, to Tampa Bay and the LA Rams. And in his mind, he had to leave. And I think Belichick certainly, you know, he was on board with that because he, he didn't extend uh, Brady on Brady's terms. You know, it, it was Brady's time here ended on Belichick's terms, in a sense. Bob, I want to get you thinking and talking a little bit about the future in a couple of minutes left here. Yeah. And I don't mean the immediate future uh, next Monday night. We'll get to that. But um, <laughs> what do the Patriots build upon as they move forward? And how much of that will occur under Bill Belichick's guidance, do you think? Well, I think Belichick, you know, he, he has built this culture. And he's, you know, people can point to some of the drafts that have been non-productive for this team. But when you're drafting at the end of the first round, and often when you have very few open roster spots to begin with, uh, I think it's, it's, it's a bit unfair in many respects because although Brady was here for this entire run, for a good portion of it, this team was built on its, on its defense. The strength of the Patriots in the early years of the dynasty was its defense. And we saw what the Patriots did, did uh, you know, the last couple of years in putting together, I thought, a very good defense. I think Belichick is going to be here for, for the foreseeable future. John, his two kids are on the staff. Uh, Steve is the defensive play caller. Brian is now an assistant coach working with safeties. Uh, his passion hasn't seemed to wane. His energy hasn't seemed to subside at all. And he deserves the opportunity. Robert Kraft hired Bill Belichick, took a chance. Uh, Belichick made, I think, the most difficult and gutsiest personnel decision any head coach could make. Drew Bledsoe just had a 10-year deal. He was the franchise QB. He was the, the, the fifth Kraft son. Belichick made the call to stick with this kid that was the you know, 199th pick in the draft, Tom Brady, and obviously it paid off. So he, he can make a tough personnel decision, and I, I think the Patriots have had success developing players. So he's got to be here, I think, in the short term to help turn things back around. I do think there are pieces in place. I think you look at the offensive line as a strength of this team, although they got a couple of guys who are going to be on the market potentially this offseason, Dave Andrews, Joe Tooney. There's talent defensively. I think this year's top pick, Kyle Duggar, is going to be a real player in this league. He's really come on of late for them. Uh, but, you know, you look at the offense, the skill positions, wide receiver, tight end. There are glaring and huge voids there. The quarterback position, obviously, they got to identify the next guy, draft and develop someone, maybe find a bridge quarterback. I don't know if it's Cam Newton. I thought a few weeks ago there's a possibility of that, less likely now. And, you know, uh, on, on the defensive side, they got to beef up the front seven. But they've got about 60 to $65 million in cap space coming next year. They, that's the other thing. They, they had to clear out the books. They had a lot of opt-outs this year as well, John, a league high eight, including players like Dante Hightower. They lost a lot through free agency as they typically do. But I just think the obstacles for this team, the challenge is too much to overcome. I don't think this is a, 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 a total rebuild, but I think it's going to take a couple of, I, I liken it, frankly, and I was thinking about this the last couple of days, to the situation the Ravens were in after their last Super Bowl title. They went through a period of three or four years where they didn't make the playoffs. They got Lamar Jackson, and then kind of midstream 2018, they changed what they did offensively. They turned things around. I think there are some pieces in place here the way there were for the Ravens, but they got to find that quarterback to begin with, and they've got to shore up some other positions. And maybe it takes – a couple of years. I don't see this being one of those deals where you guys got to tear everything down and strip it bare. And um, 
what about Monday night? Do they have enough to play for Monday night? What do you think? Yeah, I think they do. I think there are a lot of proud veterans on this team to begin with. Uh, there's, you know, nobody that I respect more in, in my experience than the two primary leaders for that team in Devin McCourty and Matthew Sledder. And I think you can add in people like the aforementioned Andrews and some others who've been around this program and have known nothing but winning and playoff football during their careers until this season. I, I don't think that, uh, you know, competing has not been a problem for this team. There's only one game where I thought that this team, you know, may not have competed uh, with all-out effort as the game went along, and that was the San Francisco game. And there's a lot to play for for a lot of these guys. Obviously, jobs, futures. I think that the tough thing for them, though, is I think the Bills are playing so well. I think the Patriots guy kind of got the Bills at a pretty good time when they first met at Orchard Park, but now the Bills look so much better to me watching. You, you've got a better idea. Obviously, you see them all the time, uh, but it's going to be a really tough game for the Patriots. They haven't scored an offensive touchdown in two games. You got to go back to the fourth quarter of their game against the Chargers in week uh, 13. Uh, so they, they've really been anemic offensively, defensively, you know, against, against the Bills. We saw how Buffalo ran all over them the first meeting, John. It's been the same story the last two weeks with the Rams and then yesterday with the Dolphins. Hey, Bob, thanks for this. Um, best of luck to you and, and have a great holiday. Have a great Christmas coming up. John, I really appreciate it. You too. Best uh, to you and yours in the holiday season as well as the postseason. Congratulations. Thanks. You're listening to Sullivan's Pro Football Kickoff with your host, John Murphy. A special guest on the podcast this week, Gloria Rakowski, who is uh, the person behind Crafted Minds. We're going to talk to her about that talk to her about her background, and she's on the line with us right now. Gloria, thanks for coming on. Tell me, what is Crafted Minds? What do you have in mind there? Hi, thanks for having me, John. Yeah. Crafted Minds is an idea that I had uh, during this pandemic time, and it's basically a, a, a education for people who are interested in learning more about beer and craft beer from anything from the history to beer styles to glassware. This just launched, uh, what, uh, earlier this month, earlier in the month? Yes. Earlier this month, I, uh, I launched it. I made it official in terms of, you know, having the website up and, and all the social media channels turned on. You, it seems to me, with your background, are uniquely qualified to do this. You are a former teacher, a former college professor, correct? Yes. Yes, I am. I used to teach Spanish at Syracuse University and other universities and colleges in New York and Florida. And you got involved in the beer business after that. Why did you make I that? I did. Well, it, it, it kind of happened organically during the time that I was working at a university in Florida. I went to Europe and I discovered beers that were new to me and it really opened up a whole new world of flavors. I was used to having maybe one or two different kinds of beers in the States, but um, I just kind of got into it from, from that trip and I immersed myself in the, in the scene Um, start off as a starting off as a volunteer and then led to me getting jobs for breweries and having it transition to being a career. What is it about the beer business that attracted you, Gloria? What got you so interested in the beer business itself? Well, I think the thing about the beer industry that I really embraced was no matter where I went, there was a a certain sense of camaraderie and equality 
that I had not experienced in higher education, uh, which is not to say that higher education wasn't any of those things. It was just expressed in a different way through the brewery scene. And uh, I, it was just something I really wanted to be a part of. I thought that there was something special about it. You know, can I say, and I'm I had a very similar conversation just last night with an in-law who was asking me about working for Sullivan's. And I told her, you know, it's, it's the beer industry is different. People are nicer. Everybody likes to talk about beer. Uh, even if you're in there selling them something, they, they want to talk to you. They want to know you a little bit. It's a, it's a social industry, isn't it? Most definitely a social industry. Uh, that's, I think that's a quality that, that drew me in. It's not just plugging in the beers and selling. It's talking to you as a person and trying to find out, you know, what you're interested in, what kind of things you like. And uh, it's very genuine. You, in interest of full disclosure, you did work for a while for Sullivan's Brewing Company, but you've worked as a salesperson and had several other roles in your beer career. Can you tell us what else you've done? Sure. Uh, I, I did work for Sullivan's as a sales representative. That was uh, my last brewery job. Uh, I started out as a brand ambassador with Great Lakes Brewing Company out of Cleveland, Ohio. And the next brewery job was with Concrete Beach Brewery in Miami, Florida. And then I did work for a small brewery in Miami by the name of Lincoln's Beard Brewing Company. And geographically too, you've worked uh in upstate New York, you're based in Syracuse now, and you worked in, uh, in Florida for a while. Uh, is there a difference in beer culture depending on where you are in the United States, do you think? Yeah, I think so. I, I can only speak to central New York and, and south Florida just from my experiences. Um, the thing that I've noticed is with, with central New York and Syracuse, the, the craft beer scene pretty much started when the American movement was starting in the early 90s. So there's some history there um, and a lot of growth. Whereas with South Florida and Miami in particular, there really wasn't a craft beer scene, if you want to call it that, until around 2011 was when that got started. When I lived in Florida, when I lived in Miami, there were only two places I could go to for craft beer, and that was Titanic and Coral Gables and the Abbey Brewing Company in Miami Beach. And they were great places, and they still are alive and doing well today. Uh, But but something about South Florida that really uh, I noticed that was different was along with the camaraderie, there was also a sense of kind of, I don't want to make it sound like a party atmosphere, but it was, everybody had true joy in what they were doing, whether it was, you know, pouring beer at a beer fest, or doing a peanut butter and jelly competition among breweries, and, you know, on a Sunday afternoon, it was just a lot of fun. Yeah. You've also, I know, spent some time in Ireland. Uh, Can you tell us what you discovered about the beer culture in that country? Definitely. I, I was able to go to Kilkenny, Ireland uh, for, for Sullivan's and I didn't get out that much, but the times that I did go and explore around in the city, um, I went to a beer bar that was located in a cave, which just took me back to like some sort of rustic medieval time that I've never lived in. Um, I also toured the Smithick Brewery and I hit a few pubs, and what I really noticed was 
the variety, first of all, of the Irish offerings and the pub scene. And to me, it felt actually really familiar, probably because I'm from an Irish American town like Syracuse. It felt very, very comfortable for me. I wonder over the years, what has become, what have become your favorite beer styles? What kind of beer do you like, Lori? Well, one that I always is a go-to that I really love is a well-crafted Vienna lager. It's really elegant and simple, and it has a really fascinating history. So, for example, if you're drinking uh, Samuel Adams Boston Lager, that's a Vienna Lager. Um, most people don't know that. Uh, I also like beers that are made with like wild yeast strains, like Britannomyces, those kinds of like funky flavors that kind of just take your taste buds to a whole other place that you're not used to. I, I like having those kinds of uh, flavors with, with the Brett beers. How about favorite breweries? Do you have any favorite breweries? Ooh, <laughs> that's hard. I, you know, I definitely have tons of breweries that, that I love, but I think uh, most recently the ones that have been impressing me and that I really enjoy are Grimm in Brooklyn. Uh, I've been there a few times and they make great sour ales and they really do a great job at blending flavors and giving you a unique experience. And it, they're just quality stuff. And then, you know, I, I can't go without mentioning Florida. And so uh, m one of my favorites in Florida in Miami is Jay Wakefield. And I've been drinking their stuff since the beginning. And uh, they, they just have a great formula for running a successful brewery and their beers are just, they're sublime. So, Gloria, Crafted Minds, um, yes. you just started it earlier this month. What, what is your mission, and, and uh, what, how did you get things going with that? What, what kind of uh, obstacles did you have to overcome to get things going with Crafted Minds? Well, when the idea came about, um, it was during this pandemic time. Yeah. So that was, that was an obstacle uh, in and of itself was – do I, do I start a business, you know, during this time? I've never been a business owner. I had no idea what it entailed. I, I did a lot of research, you know, online and, you know, did seminars and learned a lot about being a business owner in general. Um, but, you know, I just figured there's no time like the present, no matter what was happening. It just felt like the right time to strike. And, you know, it just was one of those things where I, I just one day was thinking, like, I have all these years of experience as a university professor, and now I have all these years of experience as a craft beer professional. Why not marry the two and create something for myself? As much as I love working for breweries, I just want to experience something for myself and, and educate others. Uh, about beer the way I was educated, um, you know, formally and informally, I'd like to be part of that formal, uh, that formal education for people that that crafted minds becomes their go to of, of learning. Why is it important to have an educated beer consumer, Gloria? What do you think? Um, I think it's, I think it's really important that we take initiative to always be learning whether it's about beer or anything else. So for the consumer, it's the difference between asking for, let's say the same light lager over and over again versus exploring new flavors and sensory experiences. Cause that's what happened to me. So it's kind of like opening your eyes for the first time to every single new beer 
that you try. It's different. And, you know, learning is also about expressing yourself without struggling to find the words. And it's about helping others with their journeys too along the way. And so that's what I want to do. One of the things you've pointed about and I, uh, you've pointed out and I guess written about is um, kind of the, the lack of diversity in the beer industry, right? It, it, I guess it probably is dominated by older white males. Maybe people that look and act like me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, I think 2020 has been a really exceptional year in lots of ways. And, uh, you know, thinking of tragedies like George Floyd and similar injustices to people of color, um, you know, was not something that I wasn't aware of, you know, as a Mexican American woman, uh, you know, I've had firsthand experienced racism in, in my life in different forms. And as a, as a writer, as a beer writer, I just, I couldn't be silent anymore. So what happened was I, I wrote an essay for Vine Pair about my experiences as a Mexican-American woman in the craft beer industry. And, you know, it also has its issues of diversity um, and inclusion. And right now, the, especially in 2020, it's definitely hitting the subject on the head. It's really, you, you go into the, to the beer circles and you see webinars and, and interviews and podcasts of, of people tackling these issues. And, you know, people are speaking up more and more about diversity and inclusion. And, and I just wanted to make sure that I was a part of that conversation. Yeah, important conversation. Yeah. Um, people want to know more about uh, Crafted Minds. Where would you send them and what will they find when they get to your website? What would you encourage them to look at? I've looked at it, but I'm wondering where you would, what you would point them to. Well, I would tell them to go to craftedmindsllc.com. We also have a presence on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. But I would say go to the website um, first because it really does explain, uh, you know, the mission and, you know, what you're going to get out of, of signing up for, for classes with me. Um, so I think it covers all the bases in terms of, you know, how much it costs, what am I going to learn, um, you know, what opportunities are there, um, and just being able to share and learn in a really inclusive, uh, you know, fun environment. As much as I, you know, I am a professor, it's, you know, the university classroom setting is totally different than a Zoom uh, lesson about beer. So, you know, we're going to have a lot of fun. You're going to learn a lot. And uh, yeah, there's more to come as, as we roll on with this. Gloria, are you doing your lessons in person or are they virtual right now? For right now, they're virtual. The original concept uh, was always to be in person because I've done in person teaching about beer through, through my group, the Syracuse Women of Craft Beer. So that I'm used to that, you know, speaking to groups and uh, going on brewery tours and there's nothing like hands-on. But uh, because of the pandemic, I, I definitely adjusted. And I think actually this is more inclusive because it's available to anyone around the world. And, I, you know, I'm going to have guest speakers from Florida, from Quebec, from, from Syracuse. I'm going to have people in the industry, you know, talk to the people that you normally, you know, you could be in San Diego and you're learning about, you know, sour beers from Quebec. Yeah. Um, you know, so I think there, there's something about that that uh, is going to lend itself to, to more, more learning to more people. 
Gloria, thank you for this. Good luck with this, and it's great to talk to you. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Take care. Thanks. You're listening to Sullivan's Pro Football Kickoff with John Murphy. Well, that's going to wrap up this week's installment of Sullivan's Pro Football Kickoff. I hope you enjoyed it. We're brought to you by Sullivan's Brewing Company of Kilkenny, Ireland. You've heard about it on the Bills radio broadcast so far this year, I hope. The opening kickoffs brought to you on the radio, on the radio network by Sullivan's, the makers of Sullivan's Maltings Irish Red Ale, Sullivan's Irish Gold Ale, and Sullivan's Black Marble Stout. It's available in pubs, taverns, and in stores all over Buffalo and in upstate New York, in uh, the dis- the capital district of New York, central New York, New York City, Long Island, New Jersey, Atlanta, Savannah, Georgia, in Pittsburgh, in Cleveland, Columbus, Ohio. It's growing larger every day. Check it out over the holidays, Sullivan's. Thanks to our beer guest today, Gloria Rakowski, her push for Crafted Minds, a beer education venture. Look for her online at craftedmindsllc.com. Thanks to our football guest, Bob Sochi, the play-by-play voice of the New England Patriots. We're not gloating. We weren't gloating. But I did think it was a good week to check on the Patriots and their vibe down there. The Bills play in Foxborough Monday night. I want to check on where the Patriots go from here uh, with somebody else who knows that team pretty well. The Bills in the driver's seat now in the AFC East for a change. Plus, Bob's perspective as a native of upstate New York, Auburn, New York, gives him a good standpoint from which to comment on the Patriots' future and the Bills. Thanks again to Bob Sochi. Thanks to our producer, Pat Feldball. Thank you for listening. We're always open to suggestions, critiques, comments, responses. Just shoot us an email. Shoot us an email at sullivansprofootball at email.com. Sullivansprofootball, one word, at email.com. All right, have a great holiday, everybody. We'll see you next time right here on Sullivan's Pro Football Kickoff. You've been listening to John Murphy and Sullivan's Pro Football Kickoff. It's all about the Bills and the Beards.